Welcome to Red, White, and Confused. I'm your host, Heather Evans. On November 30th, a 15-year-old boy in Michigan at Oxford High School opened fire, killing four other children and wounding several others. Karen McDonald, the prosecutor in this case, has brought charges not only against the 15-year-old shooter, but also against his parents. Today, I've invited Professor Evan Burnick to join me on the show to talk about these developments. Evan is an assistant professor of law at Northern Illinois University College of Law. He teaches courses in constitutional law, criminal law, criminal procedure, administrative law, and legislation. From 2020 to 2021, he was a visiting professor at the Georgetown University Law Center and the executive director of the Georgetown Center for the Constitution. Before that, he served as a clerk to Judge Diane Sykes of the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. From April 2017 to April 2019, he was a visiting lecturer at Georgetown and a resident fellow of the Center for the Constitution. His scholarship covers a range of topics from constitutional law to philosophy of law to social movements and to law enforcement. His co-authored book, The Original Meaning of the 14th Amendment, Its Letter and Its Spirit, was recently published by Harvard University Press. So first, Evan, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for inviting me, Heather. I'm looking forward to our conversation. So as you know, what I really want to chat about today is this decision to charge the parents in this Michigan case, whether this is fair and also drawbacks to this. And I'm going to be honest, I know very little about cases specifically like this where things are filed against parents regarding firearm violence in the United States by their children. So mm-hmm. is, it, is it unusual for parents to be charged? It's extraordinary. Uh, this is an extraordinary prosecutorial response. Not only that it involves the filing of criminal charges against parents in connection with a mass shooting, which has happened before, but with the nature of the gravity of the charges. No parent has ever been charged, let alone convicted, of a homicide offense in connection with their child's mass shooting. Uh, the particular charge that has been leveled against the parents here, involuntary manslaughter is a felony that is punishable with up to 15 years in prison. This hasn't happened before. And the point of my article is to highlight both the degree to which uh, this decision is extraordinary and to raise concerns that the precedent that it sets might be extraordinarily dangerous in ways that proponents of the charging decision may not fully appreciate. Why is it that charges like this are so rare? The reason that charges like this are so rare is twofold. First, it is very difficult for uh, a prosecutor to demonstrate uh, the culpability of somebody for a homicide offense in a case that involves uh, independent action by a third party, or at least arguably independent action by a third party. There have been cases, including um, a case in Michigan that I talk a little bit about, where parents have been charged 
uh, in connection with failing to secure their firearms in ways that led very quickly to an accidental shooting of, of children. But even within that realm, there was a there's a Washington case that I didn't have an opportunity to discuss in the article where a uh, parent's negligence leads to a child taking uh, a gun to school in their backpack and that gun accidentally discharging and killing another child. And even in the context of civil liability, which is much less demanding, much easier to prove, um, then criminal liability, the court said there's way too much that happened in between the parents' negligence and that shooting uh, to hold the parents liable. And here it's even more attenuated, more remote than that, because what is being argued here is that uh, the shooter, the 15-year-old, is culpable as an adult for first-degree murder. He's being treated as an independent moral agent in his own right. And to charge parents with failing to intervene in a way that prevented their son from, and this is you know, the theory of the prosecution against the son, independently deliberating and premeditating about committing an act of mass murder is just very difficult to prove because of causation issues, which are always important in the criminal law, but are particularly demanding in homicide cases. Yeah, because I was thinking about the terms, of course, homicide, but then also negligence. The mm-hmm. it, it would be, I mean, to say that there is negligence here is probably not that difficult, but to put it to the effect of homicide, right? That that, that is a very tough hurdle. Yes. So one thing that's really important to keep in mind here is that the negligence that is required under the criminal law Uh, is much more demanding than negligence that's required under civil law. So under civil law, uh, when we're just talking about uh, money damages for the most part, what you need to prove is that somebody who caused an injury fell below the standard of care that a reasonable person would have followed. With respect to uh, negligent homicide, what you need to demonstrate is not merely that somebody fell below the standard of care, but they grossly deviated from the standard of care that a reasonable person would follow. They were ignorant of a substantial and unjustifiable risk, and their failure to take account of that risk proximately caused somebody's death. Now, the prosecution is alleging that there were a number of opportunities that the parents missed, um, that they could have seized, that reasonable people would have seized to prevent their child from committing a mass shooting. But there are also other actors involved. There are school officials. And it is incredibly important. And this is, to my mind, um, you know, a problem with crime reporting more generally that is not particularly well appreciated. At this point, all we know is what the prosecution is telling us. All we know is what the prosecution is telling us. At the arraignment, the defense counsel for the parents made clear that they intend to challenge the claim that the guns were inadequately secured. Maybe that's true, maybe that's not, but the point is that we don't know. We don't know even if we are actually going to get a trial attesting of the prosecution's claims 
it's possible that even though the parents have pled guilty, that they will accept some kind of plea uh, as things get closer to trial. And it's important to keep in mind that uh, most cases do not go to trial. 92 to 95% of cases don't. So in future cases in which charges like this are brought, if there are future cases in which charges like this are brought, um, you won't see the kind of testing and questioning of the prosecution's claims that we might get in this case. And we won't have conversations like we're having now um, about the fairness of this kind of liability and the impact that it might have, even in cases where it seems fair, there are a range of other cases in which it might not that are gonna escape our attention if we're not focused on it right now. When they were charged, I actually thought about how, number one, this case is gonna take a while to, to settle. Um, and it looks like it is. Um, from what I read earlier this week, it's actually going to be pushed until February. So it's going to be pushed after the holidays and people are grieving in Michigan, but there are also the, the case can be made that the school failed here as well. And so policies need to be put in place in the school systems and we need Mm -hmm. to examine that. And I bet that, that at trial, those things will be discussed as well. That it isn't just the parents that perhaps missed something, that it's also the school itself. I believe the resource officer wasn't even alerted to the troubles Mm -hmm. that were happening with this student Mm -hmm. and his book bag wasn't searched. And so these things are, are, should also be discussed. Do you believe that this, you know, charging the parents sets a very high, I mean, this is a, a dangerous precedent. I do think that it is a dangerous precedent in an era of mass incarceration in which we have rates of imprisonment that are unique in U.S. history and really set it apart from other nations. And that mass incarceration could perhaps be described better as targeted incarceration, given the degree to which it is racially disparate. Um, It has been well documented. It is well known, particularly um, in the wake of Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, that we have a prison population that is disproportionately made up of people of color and specifically of Black Americans. And there are ways in which this specific charge of parental negligence strikes me as dangerous because of a long and enduring history of um, systemic structural biases against Black parents that are manifested in various ways uh, in the context of the criminal legal system. Um, The criminal legal system has broken apart Black families. It has disproportionately prosecuted um, uh, Black mothers for um, drug and alcohol use during pregnancy. It has targeted um, the uh, sagging ordinances and uh, curfew restrictions, uh, conduct that is associated with uh, Black youth culture, and it has held parents accountable for failing to keep their kids off of the streets and failing to ensure that their kids dress properly. In that context, uh, it is important to consider whether even a case like this, where if everything the prosecution is saying, the parents behaved egregiously, is going to lead to decisions down the road that fall under the radar, uh, that are not, never see the lights of trial, that are pled out in an early stage, 
um, because of the nature of the system and the degree to which people are prepared to plead guilty, even if they're innocent, for the sake of avoiding the threat of future prison time. We have to have conversations now about whether we want to introduce this new power into our system. And the primary purpose of the article that I wrote is just to confront people with the possibility that that really is the trade-off. If you want to put these parents in prison for 15 years, you need to take account of the ways in which this power can be weaponized against marginalized people in the future, because every new tool is. That's how the system works. Let me pause for just a moment. Um, So for those of you who are just tuning in, Hi, this is Red, White, and Confused, and I'm your host, Heather Evans. We've, I've been chatting with Professor Evan Burnick about the case in Michigan right now where you had a, a student, a 15-year-old boy, in, in Michigan at Oxford High School opening fire and killing four other children and wounding several others in late November. Charges were just brought against his family, his mother and his father, and we've been discussing what precedent that sets for the rest of, of, um, of law and in, in law everywhere. If this case um, has the outcome that people think that it might, given what the, the prosecutor is saying. So Evan, let's turn a little bit um, back to what you were just discussing about how this is dangerous or can be dangerous. I know that um, people on the left, people on the right, they're, they've been reading about this case and people who are pro gun control think that this is a good move. Some Republicans also have been saying this is a good move, holding parents accountable for their children's actions. So how do we kind of get them to the table to see that maybe it's not so good? So there is certainly an understandable impulse to express moral outrage. And uh, the course of American history and American criminal law has been, um, you know, saturated with morally outrageous events that lead to dramatic scalings up of carceral apparatuses and prosecutorial power. And sometimes those decisions have been ones that we look back and we regret. Uh, that we there's a you know a particularly vivid um, description of this in a James Foreman's uh, important book Locking Up Our Own that talks about support overwhelming support uh, within the black community um, not uniform not monolithic but uh, nonetheless substantial majorities in favor of cracking down on drug use in ways that from the Uh, perspective of decades later and a history of racially disparate drug prosecution and law enforcement uh, just seems unbelievable. How could those decisions have been made? How could anybody have wholeheartedly supported this given what we know now? And what I want to do is sound an alarm that is similar in spirits. As morally outrageous as what these parents have been, have um, have seemed to do, consider the consequences of um, an overreaching response that can do a lot more harm than good. And I think it's also important to recognize that even the prosecutor uh, in this case has acknowledged uh, in in her statements to the press that what she is doing 
is in parts uh, an expression of her dissatisfaction with the limits of current law in Michigan with respect to protecting people against gun violence. There was a Safe Storage Act, a uh, piece of legislation that would have imposed penalties, but not 15 years in prison for failing to secure guns in ways that led uh, children to uh, cause injury to one another. And there was an effort on the part of legislators to push this legislation, but it stalled. And what she's saying now is we need to enact this law, but in the meantime, we've got to do something. Before we do that, I suggest that we ought to consider that foregone alternative, which um, whatever one may think of it in respect of whether it could have stopped somebody who was determined to kill a bunch of people at school doesn't pose the same risks as this nebulous idea of parental negligence uh, giving rise to uh, criminal charges against parents potentially outside of the realm of mass shootings. So what do you think is a better solution? So a couple of different things. First of all, I do think that um, the criminal law as a solution uh, is not necessarily the first thing that we should reach to, even in the face of morally outrageous conduct. Um, if the reports that we're getting out of this are, are accurate, um, this, is a, this is a person who had, or the shooter is a person who had severe uh, mental problems. Um, there could have been counseling opportunities that were foregone and missed. Schools need resources to be able to provide mental health counseling to students who are troubled. And uh, before reaching to the criminal law as ways of dealing with these deep-rooted uh, social problems, I think we need to consider the degree to which we fund education and other institutions that can prevent things from getting to a point where people feel that this is an appropriate way to express themselves. That's number one. If we're going to go for the criminal law, I do think that uh, safe storage acts, which at least... Um, tie criminal liability specifically to failures to secure weapons that result in shootings, um, pose less of a risk of, you know, creeping uh, uh, prosecutorial power than a principle that says you can potentially be held accountable as a parent for the criminal acts of your children if you are deemed negligent by the system. So what happens to this student who opened fire in Michigan. I mean, what could be the outcome of that case? So if he's convicted on the charges that he's facing, he is going to spend the rest of his life in prison. And it, that is important to recognize in the context of any discussion that talks about, that raises the possibility that the parents are going to get off scot-free or get off the hook uh, for what they did here. Uh, it's difficult for me to think of a punishment for a parent that is more severe than losing your kid for the rest of his life. One can certainly appreciate the moral outrage that um, these parents, if the prosecution's uh, claims are true, uh, have rightly earned as a consequence of what they're doing. But whether it advances the cause of justice to cage them and the degree to which that is going to produce any positive change in society more generally, I think needs to be questioned. It's not as if there are a lot of parents out there who are going to say, well, gee, um, 15 years in prison, uh, that's really going to deter me more than the thought of losing my child for the rest of his life, so I'd better secure my guns. That would mean that he would be locked up for life 
And if the other case goes in the prosecution's favor, they would be locked up for it. So for 15 years, the entire family would be locked up and then their son would continue to be locked up. Right. And eventually they're going to be released from prison and they have virtually no path. Uh, given the, uh, what happens to people who are released from prison uh, to rebuild their lives. And it's like, is this worth it? Is this worth it? Um, or is the punishment that they have received as a consequence of just having their child locked up for the rest of his life, which is, seems relatively likely if the, if the claims about um, the, the, the extent of this kid's deliberation are true, isn't that enough? Just some quick statistics on this too. So in terms of children using weapons from home um, in mass shootings, so according to the Washington Post, between 1999 and 2018, children committed at least 145 school shootings. Mm -hmm. Children did use guns taken from their own homes or from those from relatives in 84 of the 105 instances where a source was identified. So about 80% of the cases... And across those cases, there have only been four adult owners that have ever been convicted of a crime. So this is very rare. Mm -hmm. It's it's not unheard of, but it is super rare. And they will Mm -hmm. have to deal with the punishment that their child receives, because in this case, the school shooter survived. Mm -hmm. In a lot of these cases, they don't. Right. Absolutely. And the other thing to keep in mind about this is that even if the prosecutor does not succeed in proving to the satisfaction of a jury the charges against um, the Crumbleys, that doesn't mean that this weapon will not be picked up and used again to extract plea agreements from people in other cases. The mere threats of liability along these lines can be used to convince people who are facing charges to plead guilty. It is overwhelmingly the case, despite all that we talk about, the need to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, that prosecutors very rarely actually have to prove anything beyond the probable cause to charge somebody with a crime, because overwhelmingly there are no trials in which People need to have things proven beyond a reasonable doubt. 92 to 95% of criminal adjudications that result in convictions never see the light of a courtroom. Now, before our interview is over today, I wanted to chat with you briefly about your work on the 14th Amendment because I see connections between it and also this case. And I wondered if you could share a little bit about your new book. It's with Randy Barnett. The title Mm -hmm. of it is The Original Meaning of the 14th Amendment, Its Letter and Its Spirit. Why is the 14th Amendment so important for us today and how does it relate to this case? So the reason that I wrote this book, I wrote this book in the, you know, in the context of the 2020 uprisings and calls to defund the police um, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. And one of the primary drivers for why I did what I did, and I thought that the story uh, was important and worth telling, 
is that the story of the 14th Amendment illustrates the degree to which radical constitutional change is possible in ways that are responsive to social movements within an existing constitutional system without scrapping everything and starting from year zero. Um, the abolitionists who provided the constitutional theory that the ascendant Republican Party that uh, frames and presented uh, the 14th Amendment to the people uh, uh, believed that um, the existing constitution, the 1788 constitution, fell short of total racial justice and allowed people to be subjugated in states um, that were in the hands of what were referred by Republicans to the slave power. And it's important to recognize that this document that we have now, this text, was the product of radical organizing. It was the product of a beleaguered and, um, you know, for a while, absolutely hated movement within the United States, eventually become, becoming hegemonic, eventually seeing their constitutional vision triumph. And it's compromised in a number of ways. Um, that's why we needed a 15th Amendment to secure voting rights. That's why we needed a 19th Amendment to ensure, uh, to prohibit uh, sex-based discrimination in respect to voting rights. Um, but it is an extraordinarily progressive and liberatory text. And I do think that it has been neglected by some on the left as an instrument of racial justice. And one of the things that I wanted to do with this book and what I'm trying to do with my work is you know, reclaiming this and saying that this is not just a, you know, the constitution is not just something that conservatives should be able to wield against subjugated people. It's an, it can be an instrument of liberation. We should recognize its limitations, but we can make good use of it as well. Well, thank you for joining me today. And thank you all for listening. You've given us a lot to think about, Evan, in terms of how this case might play out and how it might affect certain populations more than others. And that we need to consider everything when we think about this case and other cases that are related to gun violence. If you missed any piece of this program today, again, the show is Red, White, and Confused. It airs on WEHC-FM 90.7 on Thursdays at 6, Sunday at 1. But you can also catch up with this podcast at any time on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Have a great week.